Thanks, Maria. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, July 1st, 2023. My name is Tanya G, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Dottie, um, S, and um, Sue L, and as well, and she will be doing Q&A. If you have any um, questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private messaging them in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answer session. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer session, which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for, for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. I will now turn the meeting over to Harlan G. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you very much. And I'm really glad to be here. I am not in Scottsdale right now. I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois. I'm about one minute from Poop Park. And I am I, I was staying in a penthouse that was able to peruse Poop Park from its perch way atop the building across the street. So that was pretty exciting that I'm able to watch Poop Park. Anyhow, uh, I hope all of you are doing well. And I know it's a holiday weekend for us here in the States. So if you're wondering what we're talking about here and you're in some other country, this is our Independence Day coming up here on Tuesday, July the 4th. Um, every 11 days on planet Earth, one country or another declares declared its independence from Great Britain and celebrates its independence. So they had quite an empire going there. But anyway, uh, we have been talking about the chapter Working with Others. And we are in this chapter, and there are over 100 references to working with others. I almost said sponsoring, but the word sponsor does not appear in the first 164 pages of this book. The word sponsor had a very different meaning at that time than it does today. Sponsor meant that you vouched for somebody that you knew had a problem with alcohol because the stigma of alcoholism was so serious. The stigma of alcoholism was so horrible that you could lose your job, you could be uh, terminated from employment, as I say, you could lose your apartment. They, you know, there was all kinds of stigma that was related to alcoholism that hopefully we have come a long way with today. And uh, as I say, this, this concept of sponsorship, this, this idea of its importance is something that is mentioned all the way back in the doctor's opinion when he talks about that in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. But also, we also want to look at what I consider to be Ebby's um, inheritance, Ebby's bequeathment. It's at the bottom of 14, the top of 15. And it says very simply, 
my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. In all my affairs, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. So this paragraph tells me everything I need to know that it is absolutely imperative for me to sponsor other people. And that if I do not sponsor other people, I am not going to recover. It is simply not going to happen. This is a 12-step program, not an 11-step program. And the 12-step has three parts. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. So who can sponsor in OA? Who can sponsor in a 12-step program? anyone who's had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. And that could take as little as say 10 days. That could take as little as say a few days. It could take as much as it takes, but there's no uh, longevity requirement. There's no time. Well, I have three months, I have six months. Just a week or two after they got sober, Bill Wilson went right to work at town. Talking to So we go with the erroneous day, June the 95. We know we started sponsoring Bill Dotson on June the 26, 1935. And Bill Dotson was the third person that he had tried to work with when he when he first. I hope I'm I hope I'm okay now. I hope we're we're good. I hope so. Okay. I can see myself in here, so I'm going to assume I'm good. And it says uh 
It doesn't say connecting. Now I think I'm good now. Okay, sorry about that. We had a little technical difficulty here, which uh, which is it just in, into every life a little rain must fall. Okay, must be these frozen solid temperatures of Chicago that's interrupting the uh, interrupting the internet or something here. Okay, anyhow, so we have this uh, imperative in. Um, we have this imperative in OA that we must sponsor. And we've talked about the joy of sponsorship. And it says here on page 98, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. Okay. And then we have a situation that says, okay, uh, I want to sponsor but what we have is tremendous, tremendous penalty if we don't, and tremendous, tremendous reward when we do. It is very imperative that we work with other people, because if we do not work with other people, we will not recover. Okay, let's go to page 101. We're going to go to the bottom of 101, and we're going to read the paragraph you will note. It says, you will note that we made an important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social, business, or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such uh, places? And if you answer yet these questions satisfactorily, you will have no apprehension. What's a vicarious thrill? Vicarious means you're getting a thrill through what other people are doing. A vicarious thrill here would mean you're watching other people drink, you're watching other people getting drunk, you're watching other people do whatever it is that they're doing. But the bottom line is, is that we can sometimes live vicariously through these other people so we want to check our motivation. We want to check our, uh, our uh, purpose. Am I going to this place so that I can remain sober, but do business or meet friends, whatever it is? Or is it such that I'm going there because I want to get a vicarious thrill about the um, uh, the drinking part of it? And so that's something that has to be noted. We're going to be on the top of page 102. And it says here, um, it says here, go or stay away, whichever seems best, but be sure that you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive in going is thoroughly good. Now, thoroughly good means completely good. If you're harboring a little bit of excitement, you're harboring a little bit of excitement about being at a bar or being in a restaurant that you know has your favorite, you know, binge foods or your favorite things. You want to kind of check that at the door. And what does it say? Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. And oftentimes I'm challenged because there's Jewish holidays, there's national holidays, whatever holidays there are, I often go to the home of my surrogate mom. And when my surrogate mom has me over, as she always does, and I'm very lucky and very grateful that that's the case, she'll have me over and I can always do something that will bring the conversation into line with adding rather than, than subtracting. There's a lot of octogenarians there. 
and the octogenarians all have something in common. They're old and they're sick and they break down. So all I have to do is sit down and say to one of them, so what did the doctor say? Or how was the surgery? Or, you know, you know, something about their health. And this will always kind of snap the conversation away from me and focus the conversation onto them. Very, very easy to do. What is anyone's favorite subject to talk about? Themselves. So when you can get them talking about themselves, I don't have to sit and think about food. They don't have to sit and think about food. We can just talk and we can just visit with one another. And that's the thing that we want to remember. Add rather than subtract. From one end of this book to the other end of this book, if you want to combat alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, compulsive overeating, it is a process of leveling the ego. When everything I'm doing is about me, I am certain to eat. Me, me, me is the song of every relapse. Me, me, me. That's the warm up for every song possible that ends in, oh my God, I can't believe I was eating uh, Almond Joy bars. I can't believe I was eating whatever it is I was eating. Me, me, me is always the warm up to the relapse song. And then it says here, but be sure you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and your motive in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion. Think of what you will bring to it. And that's the key. Altruism, giving with no expectation of a return. Remember that Frank Buckman founded the Oxford Group because he wanted people to recapture the enthusiasm of first century Christianity. And Buckman went on a mission to China and he saw altruism in China and that altruism giving with no expectation of a return. He saw these people in China that were giving, 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 and they were not thinking of what they could get out of the situation. And then the last line of the sentence is, Think of what you can bring to it, but you. But if you are shaky, you had better work with another alcoholic instead. So by working with another alcoholic, it will automatically take you out of yourself. And by taking you out of yourself, this is something that will benefit you because you will not be thinking about practicing this disease. Why sit, I'm on page 102. Why sit with a long face in places where there is drinking, sighing about the good old days? Well, I can tell you this. I don't sit and sigh about the good old days when it comes to food. You know, I think that with eating, you don't sit around the buffet and say, man, did you remember how many egg rolls we ate? Did you remember how much beef we ate? Did you remember this? You don't sit around and do that. That's really not the point of it. But with us, it's the escape of the food is very alluring. The escape of the food is extremely, extremely alluring. If it is a happy occasion, try to increase the pleasure of those there. Again, add rather than subtract. If it is a business occasion, go and attend to your business enthusiastically. Um, if you're going to go and attend to your business with a long face and a bad attitude, 
you're not only going to drink again or eat again, but you're not going to do very well when it comes to the business end of your life. You're going to find that in all, all things, and I don't always practice this as well as I'd like to. I don't always practice this as well as I think I should, but I'm trying. But to bring to the occasion enthusiastically. What does enthusiasm mean? Where does it come from? It comes from the Greek word and the two Greek words, entheos, from God. And when he talks about enthusiastically, that is where enthusiasm comes from, from God. If you are with a person who wants to eat in a bar, by all means, go along. Let your friends know that they are not to change their habits on your account. The world does not have to revolve around my quest for recovery. It does not have to revolve around me, my needs, or my wants. That is not recovery, and that's what I want. That's not what I want. At a proper time and place, explain to all your friends why alcohol disagrees with you. Now, if you're sitting there listening to me read this sentence, and you're in a bit of a different position than me, and you just don't feel that it's in your best interest to tell people that you're in OA, don't tell them. If you're in a position where you don't feel it's it's important that you tell them about your abnormal relationship with food, don't tell them. This is not to pressure you into doing something you don't want. At a proper time and place, explain to all your friends why alcohol disagrees with you. This may not be the time. That may not be the place. You can put that off. If you do this thoroughly, few people will ask you to drink. Nobody asks me to eat. Nobody says, hey, let's eat this. Hey, let's eat that. Because my friends know the havoc that this caused in my life. It, they know the health dangers that this wrought about in my life. So nobody ever asks me to sit and eat with them. When If I say I'm eating before I come there, they accept it and they're fine. If you're not in that situation, you have to do what it is that you have to do. You were When you were drinking, you were withdrawing from life little by little. Now you are getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start to withdraw again just because your friends drink liquor. You don't have to conform with them. We are different from other people. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. And can I be of maximum helpfulness to others if I'm in the food? You bet that I cannot. You bet that I cannot, because when I'm in the food, I am a completely different person. All I want to do is know you're either going to co-sign my crap and we're going to eat our heads off together, or you're going to um, not co-sign my crap. You're going to call my cards on what I'm eating, and I am going to want to get as far away from you as God allows me to. I don't want to be anywhere near you when you are part of the problem. And to me, to be part of the problem is you're calling me on my crap. You are letting people know that I'm eating food I should not be eating. I don't want to be around people like that. I just do not. I want to be around people either that I'm going to be able to eat in front of 
or I want to be around people that are uh, going to eat like I do, and they're not going to challenge me at any level. That's who I want to be around. So it says here, so never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. And this spirit of helpfulness is a very, very strong theme throughout the book. It goes from one end of the book to the other end of the book. Remember when it says, if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. In another part of the book, it says, you better work with another alcoholic instead. And it just goes on and on and on and on about that stuff. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. So it says, never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. I believe that God interacts with me by steering me in the right direction, and it's up to me to take the action. It's totally up to me to take the action, but he will always give me that proper impetus as to here's the thing I need to do. And when all other measures fail, work with another compulsive overeater will save the day. So what I need to do first and foremost is work with somebody. And when I'm, when I'm in need of, 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 of a voice, when I'm in need of guidance, I have to remember this. When I am looking for God, I will always find God in the face of one of his children. I will always find God in the face of one of his children. Many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. Some of us still serve it to our friends, provided they are not alcoholic. Some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question. We feel that each family in the light of their own circumstances ought to decide for themselves. We are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience shows that <clears throat> such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. Now, you have to remember that Alcoholics Anonymous was started in the 1930s. And from 1920 to 1933, prohibition was the law of the land. What is prohibition? Prohibition was what it sounds like. They prohibited anyone, any entity, from manufacturing and distributing liquor, spirits, in any level. It was the law of the land that we did not do that. And so these men were products of their time. And within their lifetime, they witnessed the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which started in the, the 1880s. And then you had 
the WCTU, which is the Women's Christians Temperance Union, Carrie Nation, who was one of, not one of their founders, but she was one of their big uh, flag bearers, one of their big uh, characters. She was from right here in Evanston, Illinois. I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois right now, where I'm freezing my butt off, but it's only 77 degrees here. It's cold. So 77 to me is absolutely bone chilling. But right here in Evanston, Illinois was Carrie Nation. And some of you have seen uh, pictures of her. She looked like an old battle axe, but she used to go into taverns. She was arrested like 40 times. She would go into taverns with an axe and she would chop the, uh, the bar to pieces. She would chop she would destroy the bar. She would break the bottles. And they had a saying in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, lips that touch liquor will never touch mine. And the WCTU was very powerful. There were many religious organizations that backed them up, that subscribed to their way of thinking. Uh, I can remember that Evanston, Illinois, this very little town that she was from, was dry until about the 1970s, 1980s. There was a hotel, one of the big hotel chains wanted to put a hotel in Evanston, and they wanted to apply for a liquor license. And they said to the, uh, they said to the uh, ownership of, the, not the ownership, but the management of the Hilton, you can't have a liquor license. This is Evanston. We don't serve liquor here. There are no liquor licenses in Evanston. And they said, well, we're not going to go in there with this hotel if we can't put in a bar and a restaurant that serves liquor. And it wasn't until the late 70s that you could buy liquor in Evanston, Illinois, because of this hotel chain. And I remember flying on airplanes and the state of Kansas, before you would enter Kansas airspace, they would collect all the liquor. They would not distribute liquor while we were flying over Kansas, and they would not start serving liquor again until we were over Kansas. Kansas was a dry state. There were counties in North Carolina that were dry. And one of the people that was a big proponent of this uh, 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 WCTWU, and he was a big proponent of not only prohibition, but he was a, a proponent of temperance, complete teetotaling, was Rockefeller. And Rockefeller loomed large because they went to Rockefeller for money. When the big book was being written, they went to him for money. And he gave a stipend to Dr. Bob and Bill. He gave them something of a small stipend, but he said money will ruin this thing. But now, uh, Rockefeller was a big proponent that people never, ever put liquor in their mouths. And there were clergy people who were very, very influential at that time. And there were people who did not tolerate the drinking of liquor. They thought it was a sin. They thought it was a terrible thing. And they thought it was a blight on our society. Now, I don't drink liquor. I, I never was a drinker and probably never will be. I don't know, but I certainly don't want to impose my will or my uh, wishes upon another person that they want to drink. God, you know, God bless them. But you have to remember that Bill and, and, and Hank Parkhurst and all these guys were products of their time. You know, you thought I was going to mention Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob didn't have much more to do with the writing of this book than you and I did. But it was mostly Bill Wilson, Hank Parkhurst had a lot to do with it. Uh, uh, Fitz Mayo, he was influential in this. Jimmy Burwell was an atheist. 
and he influenced a lot of this, but Dr. Bob, not so much. That's a myth that it was Bill and Bob that wrote the book. No, that is absolutely not true. Bob Smith was, had, he, he did get chapters to review. Uh, he would just peruse them and, and he didn't have much to do with the writing of this book at all. It just, it just was not the case. So the bottom line is, is that we have a situation where um, these men were products of their time. Some, I'm on page 103. Someday we hope that Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem. But we shall be of little use in our attitude if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility. Drinkers will not stand for it. And the last paragraph of this chapter is in italics. And what it simply says is, after all, our problems were of our own making Bottles were just a symbol. Besides, we have stopped fighting anybody or anything. We have to. Very, very important. And this is something that we have as a instruction manual. Now, some of it is, is archaic because it says, you know, talking to the family and you know, get a good idea. When they had meetings then of the Oxford group, which later morphed into AA, the entire family would come. Our, our enti the entire family would, would come. So you could hear, and they all lived in the same city. You know, I talk to people every single day where I live thousands and thousands of miles away from them and they from me, but we talk every day. So I don't get a chance to meet or talk to their families in most cases. And I'm sure you're basically in the same boat as well. Now, when we look at the 12th step and we look at it, what do we see that it says? Remember, we said that it is a three-part step. The first part is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And the second part is um, we tried to carry this message. When they say this message, what are they talking about? They're talking about the message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'm going to carry a message of Harlan, and I'm going to carry the message of what Harlan thinks, or what Harlan thinks you should do, or what Harlan thinks the world should do, we're all in trouble because I don't know which leg to put in my pants first. I don't know which sock to put on first. I don't know whether I should put my left arm in my shirt or my right arm in my shirt. I don't even know those things. How am I gonna know what's best for another human being? I don't, and the truth is I don't. But as a sponsor, I'm not charged with knowing that. I am charged with helping anyone who needs help to meander through the steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is what I am charged to do. And to that end, I've been, I'm as successful as, as pretty much anyone can be. So I'm, I'm good at that, but I'm certainly not good at knowing. And then what is the third, knowing what you should do? What is the third part of the 12th step? to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So to practice these principles in all of our affairs, we have the chapter to wives, because that's your significant other, whether it's a wife, whether it's a husband, whether it's a friend, whether it's whatever it is, this is your significant other. 
And then we have to the family afterward and to the employer. So what are these three chapters about? They are about practicing these principles in all of our affairs. Now, Urban Myth says that it was Lois Wilson that wrote this chapter. It indeed was not. And it was written by Bill Wilson. When they originally were doing the big book, there was the wife of an alcoholic, Marie Bray, B-R-A-Y, Marie Bray. She wouldn't mind me telling you that because she's been dead for a long time. But Marie Bray wrote a story at Bill Wilson's request. And it was called in the first edition of the big book, The Wife of an Alcoholic. The story did not appear in the second, third, or fourth editions. It was a very short story. It was a page and a half. And it was written by Marie Bray, the, called The Wife of an Alcoholic. Originally, Bill Wilson implored Ann Smith to write the story because Bill was a politician in his mind. Now, does that mean he was involved in government politics? No, not at all. But he wanted to not only get the big book written, he wanted to make sure that the guys in Akron submitted their stories. And they were not so apt to submit their stories because many of these guys in Akron suspected strongly that this book that they were plotting was a money-making scam of Bill Wilson and Hank Parkhurst. And to some degree, they suspected that Dr. Bob indeed knew Bill from before. And this story of them meeting at the Cyberlane Gatehouse was manufactured. And that Bill and Bob and Hank were in on this money-making scheme of a book. And many of them in Akron refused to submit their stories. See, you don't have Bill Dotson's story in the first edition. So he refused. And you don't have Earl Street's story. He was from Chicago. He refused because they believed that this was a scam, that this book was a scam. And they refused to submit their stories. Well, he went to Ann Smith and she wouldn't do it. And he went to the next most credible person in Akron. And that was Marie Bray, because Bray was an alcoholic and his wife was Marie and she was very nice and she submitted a short story. Well, the reason that I'm telling you that is to confirm historically for you that one of the people that got a little upset about this, just a little bit, was Lois Wilson. She was not on board with Marie Bray writing that story or Bill Wilson writing this chapter. She felt, Lois felt, Lois Wilson, she felt very strongly that if there is going to be a chapter called Two Wives, that there should be no other person that should write this story than the woman who put up with his bullshit, who cleaned up his vomit, and cleaned up all the times that he peed in his pants, and pulled him out of jails, and pulled him out of scrapes and gutters, and pulled him out of every single uh, every single method of disgrace you can pull a person from. And she deserved the honor of being able to write this chapter. And 
Bill Wilson would not hear of it. He wanted the book to be written by alcoholics for alcoholics. So he let Marie write the story for political reasons, but he wouldn't let Lois near this story. Now, I'm not sure. I wasn't there. I can't confirm this. But one of the things that's very strange, and I'm giving you a little history, but this is not historically verifiable, I am giving you the prevailing theory. And the prevailing theory is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is not conference approved literature in Al-Anon. And in many Al-Anon meetings, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous remains unused, even though that's where they get their steps from, even though it was Lois Wilson who co-founded with Ann, um, Ann Bingham, Ann Bingham and Lois Wilson. It was not Ann Smith and Lois that founded Al-Anon. It was Ann Bingham. Bingham was a socialite in New York. And Ann Bingham and Lois Wilson started Al-Anon. And Al-Anon started, I believe, in 1950. And the 12 and 12 was written in 51 and 52, published in 53. But the bottom line is, to this day, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous remains not non-conference approved literature in Al-Anon. And many believe that the reason that it was not acceptable was because Lois Wilson bore a grudge against the big book because she felt strongly that she above anyone or anything else, anyone else, not anything else, but she alone should have been given the right, the privilege of writing this chapter for the big book of AA, and she was denied that privilege to write it. It was written by Bill. Let's get into the chapter just a little bit. I felt like I would give you a little bit of historical context, not only about our life in as, as addicts, but the thing with Al-Anon. Now, I'm not a member of Al-Anon. I don't study Al-Anon history. I am just giving you what I was told over the generations by people who do uh, study the history of Al-Anon. And this is something that is prevailing uh, throughout. And that's why the big book is not conference approved, even though it's where the steps actually come from. Okay, I'm on page 104. Page 104. With few exceptions, our book thus far has spoken of men, but what we have said applies quite as much to women. Our activities in behalf of women who drink are on the increase. There is every evidence that women regain their health as readily as men if they try our suggestions. But for every man who drinks, others are involved. The wife who trembles in fear of the next debauch the mother and father who see their son wasting away. Now, it is said that every alcoholic, every compulsive, every addict takes seven people to hell with them. And I think for some, they will take less. For some, they will take more. But I think that the number of seven, five, six, seven, eight, whatever it is, this is usually the case. You have a situation where many addicts are parents who have multiple children, who have spouses, who have employers, who have friends, who have whatever they have. 
and most alcoholics, most compulsive overeaters are going to take about seven people to hell with them. Among us are wives, relatives, and friends whose problem has been solved, as well as some who have not yet found a happy solution. We want the wives of Alcoholics Anonymous to address the wives of men who drink too much. What they say will apply to nearly everyone bound by ties of blood or affection to an alcoholic. As wives of Alcoholics Anonymous, we would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps few can. We want to analyze mistakes we have made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. We have traveled a rocky road. There is no mistake about that. We have had long rendezvous with hurt, pride, frustration, self-pity, and mis misunderstanding and fear. These are not pleasant companions. We have been driven to maudlin sympathy, to bitter resentment. Some of us veered from extreme to extreme, ever hoping that one day our loved ones would be themselves once more. Let's take a stop break right there and let's look at what we've read and let's look at what we have here in front of us. It is very, very difficult for anyone bound by blood or affection to an alcoholic not to think this thought. Daddy, mommy, child, sister, brother, friend, if you love me, why don't you stop drinking? You say to me all the time that you love me and you tell me all the time how much you cherish me and yet you keep on drinking. And what we have to understand, not just about others, but more importantly about ourselves, is that love and reason and cerebral reasoning, cerebral thinking have nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with it. We are driven by a compulsion to satisfy the unwe of our soul. We are driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity to, to do something that we know will bring us immediate peace from the unrest that we feel when we have fear and selfishness, anger, dishonesty, and self-seeking that these are the things that drive us, that it is not this taste for food. We're not hungry. We're not really hungry in the sense that we know we have empty stomachs. That is far from the situation. What is more prevalent in this situation is we need, want this food because of an unrest, a pain in our soul. And when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and we straighten out physically. And this is where this comes from. And that love and affection and reason have absolutely nothing to do with it. There isn't one person listening to my voice, whether you are listening right now on Saturday morning, July the 1st, or you are listening on a podcast many years from now or months from now or whatever, reasoning has nothing to do with it. 
We do not set out to hurt others, yet others get hurt. And so they say the road to hell is paved with good intention. And so many a child has cried themselves to sleep at night, begging God, make mommy stop drinking, make daddy stop drinking, make daddy stop making mommy cry. Those various feelings, make mommy stop making daddy cry. You know, whatever that may be, bring my sister home, bring my brother home. So we, we look at God and we blame him when he had this solution in front of all of us the entire time. We're so lucky to have been born in an era where there is recovery. You know, if we were born 90 years ago or any time before 90 years ago, there was nowhere for us to go. There was nothing that we could have done. We would have not died with the disease. We would have died from the disease. So this is something that is very, very important. Our loyalty and desire that our husbands hold up their heads and be like other men have begotten all sorts of predicaments. We have been unselfish and self-sacrificing. We have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husband's reputations. We have prayed, we have begged, we have been patient, we have struck out viciously, we have run away. We have been hysterical, we have been terror-stricken, and we have sought sympathy. We have had retaliatory love affairs with other men. But when we get frustrated, when we get scared, angry, indignant, we do a lot of crazy things. And every morning of my life, every morning, I read these words, and the words are from page 88 of 87 and 88 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. And then the, the five most important words of the book, of any book, anywhere, at any time, it works. It really does. So when we look at those words and we see how frustrated we can be, how scared we can be, how unbelievably angry we can get, we have to remember that these emotions, the buildup of these emotions have been catapulting us into the food since we were children. Very important. Page 105, our homes have been battlegrounds many an evening. In the morning, we have kissed and made up. Our friends have counseled chucking the men, and we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while, hoping, always hoping. Our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. We, we have believed them when no one else could or would. Then in days weeks or months, a fresh outburst. 
Do we mean to hurt the people around us? No. But we're going to eat because we know nothing else. Nothing else puts out that fire like food. Nothing else works like the food. Nothing else will take the edge off like the food. And we eat that food in search of relief from the intenable pain of not eating it. And when that food hits our system, it instantly changes our perspective, our perspective of reality. And it is bliss. Dr. Silkworth calls it the effect. He says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. He says this effect is so elusive that many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. And even though we know we're killing, I'm paraphrasing, even though we know we're killing ourselves, we cannot help but pursue it. And once this food is in our system, now we trigger the physical allergy. And if I can't eat because of the allergy, can't control the amount of food I'm going to take in because of the allergy, and I can't stop eating or I can't keep from eating because of the mental twist, my life is unmanageable and I am powerless over food. I am absolutely powerless over food. And no amount of love for a child, no amount of love for a spouse, parent, relative, friend, job is going to change that. I must have this food in me because I cannot bear the emotions that I'm feeling. I just cannot bear them. And we learn alternative response systems of calling, reaching out to people, going to a meeting, doing the things we need to do to get out of ourselves. And in getting out of ourselves, this idea of food leaves us and we can achieve through, with God's help, only through God's help, this position of benign neutrality, this benign neutrality that is so eloquently described at the bottom of page 84 and all of 85 up to where the start of step 11 is, it is just eloquently and poetically described this feeling. But what does it say? We, are, we have to do this every day. We never arrive at recovery. Recovery is never a a destination. It's a journey. And we have to see it as a journey. And when we see it as a destination, we are in big, big trouble. Recovery, I'm going to repeat, recovery is never a destination. It is a journey. And we must remain in fit spiritual condition. How do I remain in fit spiritual condition? The same way I remain in good physical condition. I have to work out every single day. And if I'm not willing to do what it takes to work out every single day, I am certain to die in the food. I am certain I am not going to be able to make it because I of my own willpower have shown again and again and again and again that my willpower is not sufficient. On page seven of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson tells us in the story, Bill's story, on page seven, he says, 
Best of all, I met a kind doctor, Silkworth, who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. Listen to the next sentence. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it remains strong in other respects. So what he's telling me here is that many of you, many of you have accomplished amazing things. You have become top in your professions. You have become lawyers and doctors and you've become CPAs and, and psychologists and, and, and psychiatrists and secretaries and homemakers and and wives and husbands and brothers and sisters, whatever it is you have become, you've done so on your talent. You've done so because of your grit and determination. And nobody can take those things away from you. But the one thing you could not do, because if you could, you wouldn't be here today or ever, you could not control the amount you ate once you ate certain foods on your own, and you could not keep from eating them on your own willpower. So despite the fact that you are just amazingly gifted and have worked amazingly hard, the idea that you yourself can control the amount of food that's going in your mouth is absolutely ludicrous. You are a compulsive overeater and by reason of your allergy and by reason of your mental twist, you are forever different from normal people. You're just like us, but you're not like them. You're just like us, but you're not like them. So you have a place to go. Be grateful for it. Because there were people born for thousands and thousands of generations that had nowhere to go. They bought snake oil and they had their money taken and they spent their lives in misery. They spent their lives in misery, looking for some solution that was not there. It was absolutely not there. Page 105, we seldom had friends at our homes, never knowing how or when the men of our house would appear. We could make few social engagements. We came to, our, uh, we came to live almost alone. This is a disease of isolation and what it does, not just to the, to the sufferer, but often to the family, it cuts you off from other people. It makes it so that you are isolated. What does any good abuser do? A good abuser uh, uh, cuts you off from your support system. They cut you off from friends. They cut you off from family. And this is how they control you. They want to make it so that they are the air you breathe. You, they don't want you hanging around with other people. And this disease is a very good abuser. It cuts you off. It isolates you. And it does so very effectively through shame and through intimidation. Very, very sad. When we were invited out, our husbands sneaked so many drinks that they spoiled the occasion. If on the other hand, they took nothing, their self-pity made them kill joys. So 
with the alcoholic, you, you just can't win. The compulsive overeater, you can't win. If they're eating, you're not going to enjoy it. If they're not eating, they're going to be full of rage and full of self-pity. There was never financial security. I'm at the bottom of 105. Positions were always in jeopardy or gone. An armored car could not have brought the pay envelopes home. The checking account melted like snow in June. Sometimes there were other women. How heartbreaking was this discovery? How cruel to be told they understood our men as we did not. The bill collectors, the sheriffs, the angry taxi drivers, the policemen, the bums, the pals, and even the ladies they sometimes brought home. Our husbands thought we were so inhospitable. Joy killer, nag, wet blanket, that's what they said. Next day, they would be themselves again and would forgive, and we would forgive and try to forget. We have tried to hold the love of our children for their father. We have told small tot that father was sick, which was more nearer the truth than we realized. They struck the children, kicked out door panels, smashed treasured crockery, and ripped the keys out of pianos. In the midst of such pandemonium, they may have rushed out threatening to live with the other woman forever. In desperation, we have even got tight ourselves. They drunk to end all drunks. The unexpected result was that our husbands seemed to like it. This is a disease that infects the entire family. I affected my parents. My parents fought like cats and dogs. But the one thing they could both agree on, the one thing that they could come together on was what are we going to do about Harlan and his eating? What are we going to do because our son is dying? And there were, um, there were doctors that confirmed to my parents that I just wasn't going to live very long. I just wasn't going to live very long because I was too overweight. And I was not in any type of shape whatsoever. And so this became a sore spot for my mother and father. And so they were extremely concerned. They loved me very, very much. And even though they never got along, they sure came together when it came to my health. And so <clears throat> this was something that some of you have experienced too. You know, people just don't know what to do for us. They just, they feel as if they just say this or they say that. The, the uh, bottom line is that none, none of that is going gonna, is gonna to help. So to encapsulate the ground that we've talked about today, when it comes to sponsoring and it comes to life, removing yourself from temptation is not always a good thing. It's not always a bad thing. You have to know your own situation. If you have any good reason to be at a certain place, go there. And if you go there, go there enthusiastically. No amount of, or excuse me, any scheme to combat, excuse me, any scheme to shield the alcoholic from temptation is doomed to failure. And when it comes to our families, which is what our wives in this chapter two wives, which we're going to be discussing next Saturday, and we're going to be discussing it for a couple of Saturdays here, because it's actually quite a long chapter. We're going to be in this chapter a while. And the bottom line is we're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about what the addict does and how we respond as non-addicts 
to the actions of the addicted. And we're going to be doing that over the course of the next few weeks. So before I turn it back over to Maria, I'm going to ask you a couple of things as we go into Q&A. Number one, if you asked a question last week when we were having our last full discussion on sponsorship, please hold back and let people who did not ask a question come forward. And the other thing I'm going to ask you is let's not waste any time with food questions.